Sir, could you talk about how the Marine Corps is currently using wargaming to help shape force design? I know this is a hot topic issue right now. Yeah. So to be fully transparent with the audience, that that act, that actually is my full-time job at the yeah. moment is, is trying to figure that out, right? Yeah. So uh, so the, I'm living and breathing this every day right now and have a phenomenal team uh, in the wargaming division here in the warfighting lab that is, that is helping uh, me do this. And so the commandant, uh, when he put out his, his planning guidance, you know, wargaming is baked completely throughout. As a matter of fact, um, you know, last summer, back last year, right, when he put out the planning guidance, I was actually, I was actually on a plane uh, heading to Thailand on, on a vacation with my wife, right? And just before I got on the plane, somebody emailed me the commandant's planning guidance. And uh, I kind of had a, I knew a little bit about what was going to come and, but I was shocked on the plane as I'm reading through this PDF of, of his planning guidance in the full extent of uh, how wargaming, I think, uh, I remember there's like 29 pages in there or something. And there's like, it's on like eight to 10 pages of wargame. Yeah, several references. Definitely. Yeah, there, it's, it's, it's mentioned a lot of times in the yeah. planning guidance and with force design. And so I remember telling my wife, I'm like, okay, better enjoy this vacation because when I get back, I'll be uh, it's, it's going to be a sprint. Sure, and, sure. and I'll tell you, it hasn't let up at all. Yeah. And, uh, and if anything, it's getting more and more intense with the force design effort. So, uh, you know, first off, I just say we wrestle in the design with the role and mission of the Marine Corps within a joint campaign. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that's that's fundamentally. Well, first off, what's the national strategy? What, what do we need the Marine Corps to do? Mm -hmm. Right. And, and there's some articulated guidance out there that says, hey, this is our this is our national strategy. Marine Corps, we've got this broad guidance for you. And, and then, you know, the start point for me in war game was kind of figuring out, okay, what really is the role and mission here for the Marine Corps within the joint campaign? Mm -hmm. And, and I saw uh, right off the bat, as we started doing some war gaming and we're, we're employing Marines, Marine forces in the game. Mm -hmm. And, and there were games when we were running those forces in isolation. And then I went to like an air force game and they're running on the exact same terrain and they don't have us in their game and, yeah. we're, and we're not in theirs. Right. right. Um, uh, or, and they're not in ours. Right. right. And, it, and it really struck me. I'm like, Holy smokes, we're, we're both war gaming the exact same thing. And yet we don't have each other's forces in here yeah, but and, not with each other present. Right. That, that's right. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm looking at this and I'm going, okay, well, I see all kinds of opportunity space sure. where if we had our forces together, we would be, we could really do some, interesting things uh, from a joint campaign standpoint. So I think that's a really important point is it is a joint campaign and we're fighting as a joint force. Mm. Therefore, the Marine Corps doesn't have to do it all. However, there is a critical design decision that has to be made in every case of, are we going to provide a unique capability or are we going to provide additional capacity with those capabilities to the joint force, like air defense is a perfect one, right? Mm -hmm. So does the army provide the, the air defense capabilities for the joint force? And to what extent does the Marine Corps need to form and stand up its own air defense capabilities? And is that, if it does, and the answer is yes, is that simply, you know, point defense, 
you know, counter UAS kind of capability, yeah. or do we get into some of the bigger systems yeah. where we have medium or long range air defense capabilities? It's a design decision, yeah. right? And from a joint force standpoint, you can either put more money down on the army and say, army build more, right. And, and have more capacity. And you're going to provide that role to the overall joint force. Mm -hmm. Or do you take some of that money and put it down in the Marine Corps and go, okay, you need to replicate that kind of capability. So we have more capacity. And, and then part of that decision is, and this is really a crucial question is, what is the combined arms set of capabilities that you need to have in that battle space as we look mm -hmm. to the future, right? As, especially with all domain operations, when you got to factor in the effects of and, and the interaction within the force and the role of things like space capabilities, mm -hmm. cyber, electromagnetic spectrum, right? And then now that we're talking, you know, great power competition and potential conflict, you know, there's, there's now a contested airspace. No. contested maritime space you know the marine corps in, at least in the last several decades we've focused on contesting the ground right right and and we had high confidence in you know that we controlled the airspace that we controlled the sea space but now that's that's as we war game it's a contested environment. And, and so as we look at the combined arms set of capabilities, the, the whole landscape has changed of our definition of what combined arms means as the commandant has put this benchmark out there that says, Hey, we're going to contribute to a maritime campaign mm -hmm. from a sea denial standpoint. That's a different set of combined arms capabilities than what we've historically, uh, you know, employed. So part of the game effort then is helping to inform the design of the combined arm set of capabilities. And once we determine, okay, you got to have X, Y, and Z capabilities as part of the force. That's great that you come to that conclusion, but then the design question is who's delivering that capability. Hmm. Is that, is that the Marine Corps yeah. or are we then going to go to another service and say, okay, we need you to do this. Right, right. And, and, and that's not just our decision. That's a joint staff decision, you know, as well as we talk about a joint warfighting concept and who's doing what. So, so from the force design war gaming, there's the macro, you know, big picture questions of what does the joint force need us to do right. within the joint campaign? What's the role of mission of the Marine Corps? And then there's the question of, as we look at tomorrow's battles, what are the set of combined arms capabilities that we need to have in the fight? And then there's the question of who's going to deliver that capability. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. The warfighting lab, your particularly your division, the wargaming division uh, has been using games like command professional edition for, for analytical wargaming. If, if I'm terming that correctly, could you tell us about how you're using something like command and are, are there other games that you are using or would like to use? Yeah, so Command Professional Edition is one we started really standing up the capability to do games uh, just over a year ago. Yeah. And, you know, Command a year ago was only a single player game. Yeah. So from the games we're running, uh, that offers value. But it's what we really wanted was a multiplayer version of the game so that we could go you know, fully head to head. You can go head to head 
with uh, with command in the single player mode, you just have to be in the editor mode and you bounce back and forth. It's not ideal. Okay. Yeah. But it but it can be done, and I've seen very good board games executed using it in that way, and they're small games. Yeah. But there's a significant value proposition to then you know turning loose in a full multiplayer. So we wanted that. So we we uh, contracted with Matrix Games to build out a multiplayer version, which they did, and uh, they did it in a you know, very fast timeline, uh, gave us great support. And, and when we used that, you know, the commandant put out his force design 2030 report uh, earlier this year in March, where the initial conclusions of the first like eight months of, of planning and study efforts came out. And he's like, okay, here's what I have high confidence in. And then here's areas where more analysis and wargaming needs to occur. And those became uh, the tasks uh, page 10 of that, that report, those became the tasks that then we have focused on uh, really since March. And we, we use command, you know, one of those questions dealt with, you know, the, the expeditionary force we're putting forward, particularly this idea of a Marine littoral regiment. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we're, we're looking to stand, stand up one here in the next couple of years and, you know, form it. So war gaming that we do now is directly influencing the concepts around the force that we're actually standing up. You know, it's, it's great that a lot of the war games in the past have been kind of hypotheticals. Hey, what if we did this? How would this play? And then, you know, great report put on the shelf and then move on to the next target. Right. Well, well now it's like, Hey, we're actually standing this up. So, you know, we're going to take what comes out of this game and we're going to immediately, you know, be looking at this and, and possibly applying those insights uh, that we get out of this. So it's really important, right? That we try to get this right. So what we needed was a tool that, uh, that put some rigor into adjudication. Hmm. If you put, if you put a bunch of Marines in the room, which we did, and then you say, Hey, what do you think's the critical factors? And then you go to the other side, what do you think's the critical factors? And you adjudicate an outcome. That's a matrix style Hmm. game. That's what that's called, right? You're, you're relying on subject matter expert opinion, right? That's valuable, and there's always a role for that, but it only takes you so far, right? Now, now let's play your decisions in a force-on-force environment where you need to dynamically make those decisions. And oh, by the way, there are actual physical constraints. Mm. You, you cannot fly that missile farther than X. Right. You, you cannot fly your aircraft farther than X unless you refuel it, right? And so the concept of your kill chain, your combined arms capabilities, you have to assemble it and employ it in a, in, in a rigorous adjudication environment that then gives you some, some insights where you have, you've done that adjudication using a tool like command that allowed you to play a host of factors and induce as much simulation of the environment as possible into it that, that from a human standpoint, we need to, if we're adjudicating, we got to abstract it and simplify it down where a computer can get in and factor in all kinds of things like the amount of energy you're putting out, um, right. track the fuel. You'd want to get logistics factors in. So we did not have a tool. Mm. We didn't have a tool that was giving us that level of depth of insight mm-hmm. when we fought out a war game uh, because we were largely reliant on matrix style games yeah. or a custom game that we would make for a specific objective mm. 
and then move on to the next target. So we needed something like command that provided this maritime warfighting environment that we could dive into. And it's not perfect by any stretch, but it is a great game and it provides valuable insight. And from a player standpoint, we found that when you put the players in the role interacting with the game, they have this common operational picture that's pretty good. It immerses them in the game. They get immediate feedback and they're, they have an opportunity to test ideas and concepts of how they employ their force. And it can be very instructive. Um, Now that said, it's a conceptual level look and you just have to understand a tool like command, its strengths and its weaknesses and understand what kind of conclusions you're drawing out of it. So that, that's what we've used it this year. Uh, really got the multiplayer version up and running. I've used it both in the single, single player mode and multiplayer in our Ender Shadow War Game series that focused on the Marine Littoral Regiment. And then most recently with the Naval Services game, uh, that we executed, we used it to support vignettes. So we didn't bring it in and, and actually try to fight it out in a traditional game sense. What we did is we, we asked the players to put together, you know, kind of a combined arms package, you know, like you'd see in a combined arms staff trainer, right? So we said, hey, put your combined arms package together for this specific vignette mm-hmm. and assemble your ISR. What's your fire solution? And then we took their plan, plugged it into command, and then the next morning when they came in, we played it for them, Got right? Yeah. So, so we just, hey, hit play, and they could watch their missiles flying, yeah. see the sensors, watch the interaction of, with the ship's defenses, and kind of get some insight out of that. And it was useful yeah. uh, in that regard. So command is one we've been using. Uh, where we've been, uh, been kind of looking at a number of different options is things like battalion level ground operations. Because mm. command is not designed for that. There's a number of options out there. Uh, we work with DARPA with their Proteus mm-hmm. game, which yeah. has a lot of lot of valuable uh, opportunity space in there. It's still in development. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some things on the commercial market that are interesting. We have not we have not gone down this road yet, but they're definitely on my radar. Uh, things like Combat Mission Two, yeah, yeah, uh, Red Dragon, uh, Flashpoint campaigns. You know, these all have potential value uh, as tools that are on the shelf that we could pull in. But what I wrestle with from a game director standpoint is um, the time investment with my team to to learn these games and then figure out how to apply them to uh, extract learning out of. Uh, I'd also say there's a government uh, tool that's uh, called Swift that uh, we've been working with uh, – with a contract company on this provided support to Wargaming Division through uh, Swift with a tool we've called uh, Marine Corps Wargaming Analysis Method uh, Operational and One Tactical, McWhammo and McWhamT. And we use that for a battalion level game. And it, it's one that, you know, we can get in the guys that put it together or the contract guys that uh, support us. And so a lot of flexibility to, to actually go in and tweak the model to support our requirements. And there's a lot to be said for that. And uh, so that's the kind of tool we've used as kind of a government off the shelf war game engine uh, that we got all the control over the algorithms and, and can customize it as needed. So there, there's a lot of different opportunity space. I'm not necessarily satisfied with, uh, with all the tools that we're using right now. I mean, they're all, they're all useful, right? Um, uh, I, I, I believe we, we will 
continue to get better as we target other tools and, and leverage them. But in the end, every game kind of has its own objective purpose and mm -hmm. you need a family of tools to be able to effectively get after the various questions. I'm curious if you could help tease out the differences between wargaming for education and wargaming for analysis, insight, concept development, knowing that there is some blend between those, right? You would, you would mention um, using command or some of these other tools for what you're doing with force design. And I think, I assume that the, the players, in addition to kind of teasing out insights or, you know, how would they use the, the MLR or, you know, what are some considerations we need to think of for, you know, actual use of, of these units and capabilities, they're also learning. Right, they're they're learning about those capabilities. There, there is a learning component. So I know it's it's hard. You can't necessarily separate them completely. But if you could just talk to the differences between them, the the focus of educational versus analytical. And if if I'm using, you know, if if there are different terms that you guys use, feel free to to use those and and kind of help help me help our listeners better understand the differences between these different uh, approaches to wargaming. Yeah, that's a really good question, and I'm, I'm going to tackle it from a unique direction here. Sure. Um, so one of the challenges that we face with our concept and capability games is the, the player knowledge of the capabilities, right? So if, so if we try to run a game in a week, you, you got to devote at least part of the first day Unless, unless you've had enough time and opportunity in advance to do some instruction with the players before they come. A lot of our players that come in are coming in cold and we may be throwing brand new capabilities at them, right? So, so the player learning matters and their understanding of the capabilities that you're trying to employ and, and the various concepts associated with them and, and the capabilities, it's important that they have some understanding of that. And so we wrestle in our game design with the use of time and how much time are we devoting to leveling briefs and you know getting the player up to speed and it's never enough time, right? So then the first game turn is a school of hard knocks where, where they're, they're learning uh, and then you may get an advanced, more advanced level of play on say Wednesday or Thursday by the second, you know, third or fourth day of the game. And then, you know, your game's over. Yeah. Uh, and this is speaking to like what is typically done is this week long game event. And there are huge drawbacks to that methodology because you're not getting to a mature advanced level of understanding of the capabilities you're trying to employ. So, so the player learning, you know, maybe you failed with that set of capabilities because you didn't employ it or you right or you tried to employ it using today's techniques mm. right how do you get them to a point where when they're steeped in today's tactics and methodologies and you're dealing with a future capability that may require a new set of tactics and they have to think differently about it right so we have to factor in the human dimension here 
Sure. In the gameplay, and we have tried to shift our methodology to an iterative war game approach where we're doing multiple games in a series and we're trying to keep some continuity in our players. So, for example, coming up this spring, we're running, uh, you know, from wargaming division standpoint, we're running three different war game series, one focused on the Marine Expeditionary Unit, and we're running three games. We're doing one on the Marine Littoral Regiment with another three games, and we're doing four games on operations in the information environment. And we're trying to maintain, uh, not in every case, but we're trying to maintain a, a common player cell mm-hmm. through those. And at least the study team, right, that's applied to that is common because it requires time. These are hard, complex uh, issues that we're wrestling with. It requires time to kind of figure it out. You're not going to come in in a week and solve it. Right. And so we've changed the methodology to try to create this campaign of learning approach so that we're learning, the players learn and understand the capabilities. They learn and understand the concepts. And after they've got a mature understanding, they got multiple reps and, hey, we tested it this way, this way, this way. Now you're finally at the point where you can do some real learning mm. and insights and go, okay, now let's try this yeah. and, and then come up with recommendations. And so it takes time and it takes, uh, you know, dedicating, dedicating people to do that in order to learn. So, so learning is absolutely a critical dimension of concept and capability wargaming, right? And when you come out of that, hopefully you've got a really good understanding of how to fight these future concepts and the future capabilities. Um, and it takes time to do that. And, and that's been a challenge for us because everybody's got a day job, right? Sure. And, and so it's hard to get the people to devote to that. Now let me shift gears and go to educational wargaming. Sure. So from an educational wargaming standpoint, um, now you are really entirely focused on uh, the, the player learning. You know, in, in the concept capability, the player learning is just a benchmark objective on the pathway to the real learning, which is what's the concept and what's the capability. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to get the players to learn in order to achieve that goal, or, or you're going to have a faulty conclusion regarding the concept and capability, and that's going to drive the future of the Marine Corps, right? And so, so it's, it's a critical enabler sure. to your broader outcome. Uh, but in the end, if the players come in and learn, but you didn't come to conclusions about the concepts and capabilities that you needed, then your game failed. Right. right? So, so I'm less concerned about, Hey, is he walking away a smarter Marine? Of course I'm concerned about that, but the mission is, Hey, answer the question about the concept and capability to inform a senior leader decision, you know, about that. And a palm and, you know, a a budget investment decision on a future capability, you know, that's the goal. And and but you have to achieve the the learning of the players in order to get that goal. Sure. When you shift to an education environment, you take the pressure off, frankly, from my standpoint, right? Because yeah. now, now you're not uh, seeking to answer questions for senior leader decisions about future investments and how we fight. Now you're focused on an officer or an enlisted marine, and your your or some of the civilians that participate in our uh, our professional uh, education courses and now you're focused on truly learning mm-hmm. and and from an education standpoint you know there's also training war games right 
So, so you got training as a potential target or objective. You got education. You got future concepts and capabilities. The education side, this is where I'd argue you're really going after the principles mm-hmm. of war, right? This is this gets to MCDP one warfighting, and then at various levels of war, from strategy to operations to tactics. You want them to understand the fundamentals. You want them to understand the critical factors at play and get rep, reps in decision-making and wrestling with those factors. When you're talking about a training game, now this is, this is very specific to perhaps applying a specific set of tactics. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a, you know, you're rehearsing a specific operation you know, to better prepare your plan, you know, maybe it's battle staff training you're focused on and in trying to focus the staff in a specific, you know, maybe it's you're an ARG MU staff and you want to get really good at doing a raid. And so you're going to war game that over and over. It's, and that's a kind of a blend of education, but also training in, in making sure that you've got your process and procedures down. Mm-hmm. Um, but from an education environment, typically those goals are a little bit more abstract because mm-hmm. you want them to understand the principles that they can then apply uh, when they go out in the fleet marine force and do whatever job they're in, that they've got this grounding in the fundamentals uh, that they may have to wrestle with. Now, there's, there's making those distinctions, uh, at least for me, clears a lot of things up. So that's, that's super helpful. While you've been at the uh, Wargaming Division, you guys have released a, a tabletop game called Assassin's Mace. Could you tell us what it's about, its design, its objectives, how you guys are using it? Yeah, very happy to. So Assassin's Mace is something we've been working on for uh, more than a year and a half, almost two years now. Uh, it is it is a game that is operational level warfare in the Western Pacific. You know, hexes are 200 nautical miles. That should give you an idea of kind of the level. The map covers from Japan to Australia. Uh, in fact, uh, it, it's, it's got uh, the, each turn and it can be anywhere from a day to we've, we've done some of the games set to four days and sometimes abstract turns at 10 days. And you're looking at uh, the problem set of the Western Pacific and a hypothetical war with China is set in 2025 is just a date we arbitrarily pick for the game because we, in the design of the game, in the counters and the values and the factors you put on there from the ranges of weapon systems to what, what systems are in play, right? You have to pick a year because that's going to define your order of battle. So we just picked, uh, we wanted to pick a year that would be somewhat in the future, but then also enough, not far enough in the future, not, you know, far enough away that it would be, you know, irrelevant to like a Marine serving today out in like a Marine Expeditionary Force, right? We want something they could be useful to them and to be used in the schoolhouse. Uh, I've heard it said that really a schoolhouse is targeting like the next three years timeline, right? Because that's what they're going to leave. And their first tour will be the next three years Mm -hmm. in the application of forces. So we targeted 2025. And then as we designed this, we wanted a game system that could play fast, that you could learn quickly and try to get farther through a campaign. When we first started out, we took two commercial war games, uh, Next War from uh, GMT and then South China Sea from Compass Games. Next War has got a really good ground combat system and model. South China Sea has a, has a pretty good uh, naval and air system. And so 
we took those and created kind of a hybrid game. And we, we fought a European theater uh, conflict using our hybrid tool that we had developed, uh, you know, combining these two games. And then we fought a Pacific theater one. What we found was due to the complexity, we got bogged down. As soon as, as soon as shooting starts, the complexity of trying to adjudicate and do the strike planning. I mean, we would spend an entire day wow. uh, on like one turn, yeah. right? And, and then we, but if you want to get farther into a campaign and understand, hey, what is the role of the Marine Corps within the broader joint campaign? You need to play it out over time, right? And there's only so many days in the week. And so we wanted a system that we could, that could be more flexible and adaptable and we could get through play faster. So that kind of, so we, we basically started over mm -hmm. and, and decided we're going to create our own hybrid design because there was really nothing else out on the market that we could target besides like the next war game and the South China sea that we thought was useful. So we decided, okay, we're going to have to make it up. Mm -hmm. So we looked at some of the government game systems, like what uh, Center for Army Analysis puts out there with JWAM, uh, Joint War Game Analysis Method. And we took some of the turn sequences and we ended up coming up with our own game system. And then what was key here is from a game mechanic standpoint, we went to a dice game mechanic where we have four-sided, six-sided, eight, 10, 12, 20-sided dice yes. that, that allowed us to create a system of dice promotion mm -hmm. where we were able to throw away combat tables. We, 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 you know, all the time that you spend consulting combat charts with the odds tables in most right. war games, we got rid of all that and, and just went to a game mechanic where you just look at the dice values and you're rolling those dice. And, right. and if you end up with certain modifiers, you promote them from like a, a six-sided die to an eight-sided die. So it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's an easy system to learn and, and allow somebody that perhaps isn't a war gamer to, to quickly learn the game system. So that's what we focused on. And we're now at a point where we've got a fairly mature game system. Uh, we're starting to create expansions um, at the tactical level and uh, looking to add more orders of battle to it. And then here in the next few months, uh, we'll shift target to the European theater, build out a module for the European theater and then perhaps in 2022, uh, may, may take longer, yeah. we'll shift to uh, the Middle East and, and then build out a module for the Middle East. What, what I'm hoping will emerge from this is a common game system that students at Marine Corps University can play yeah. in seminar. They can learn the rules. And once they learn the rules, they can play scenarios in the Pacific, in Europe, in the Middle East. And then when they go to their command, let's just say they're going to like one of the MEFs, sure. the MEFs now have a tool that they can use to support their planning. And, and it's not going to get them super detailed, right? But at least they have a tool. Right, right now, they don't have a tool, right? right? Unless you're going to plug it into something like MTWAS and do a full-on you know, battle simulation, which right. is very intensive. But if I'm a planner sitting at the MEF, I do not have a tool on the shelf where I can take a map, throw it on the table, lay out my, my MEF and some naval counters, lay out the threat with their order battle, and wargame it, right? In the, in the traditional tabletop wargaming sense that, that you and I would think of. 
They don't have that tool. Why is that? I mean, it's crazy to me. And so we've been, we've been putting a lot of effort in this to that goal. I was the G5 out at Mar4UrF in Germany, and we're working on O plans. I did not have a tool where we could, hey, well, let's war game this. Right, right. Right? I mean, unless you're going to do it in a, uh, you know, you're going to hire a contractor, which, you know, European Command did, and they brought in guys from Center for Army Analysis, and they ran JWAM and did a great game. It was one of the best games I've ever been to, you know, from a learning standpoint. They did phenomenal facilitation. It was a great event. Uh, But we didn't have that kind of capability on our staff. Uh, and I didn't have the time as the G5 to sit down there and come up with a game system mm-hmm. with some basic rules for adjudication and then, and then play it with the staff. I would have loved to have done that. Yeah. I would have, I would love to have a tool like Assassin's Mace that I could have applied back then. So that's kind of the vision for this thing is creating an operational and tactical game system that can be used in professional military education and then can also be applied in the FMF in our headquarters. And I'll tell you, this is gaining a lot of traction. We've done beta testing with Naval War College uh, war gamers, with guys from Leavenworth, mm. guys from Australia, from their war game plugging into this. We've had folks from the Air Force. Uh, there's been uh, Army's Futures Command. We've had a lot of folks from across the joint community that have contributed to the beta testing in this thing. And it's getting a lot of traction. I'm pretty excited about it. And and frankly, we can't get it out fast enough yeah. right, with the expansions and modules. We've also developed a Vassal module for, for those listening uh, that are war gamers. A lot of them are probably very familiar with Vassal as a, as a software tool. So MITRE uh, did a great job supporting us with this and, and helped build a, a Vassal module for Assassin's Mace. And uh, we're starting to get that out there with folks using it. And so I think over this next year, we're going to see it start to hit a lot of use cases in education and with the operating forces. I, I really like the ideas behind this, this system and the expansions and how you're trying to get it, not just in the schoolhouses, but in the fleet and make it a tool for planning. You know, So the next time someone is on a staff and they're trying to figure out the the advantages and disadvantages of an O plan and they have something like this to play the O plan out and get I think a, a better understanding of hey where are the friction points or what are things that we're not considering so it's it's I mean this is exciting I know um I think Sebastian Bay I'm sure you know uh, Sebastian he has brought it to the Naval Academy and I think they have a wargaming club or, or society. And there was a, there was an article uh, not too long ago. And I, th- I think, I think, I think it, yeah, it was Assassin's Mace. And one of the midshipmen had called it, you know, the most intense game of battleship ever, you know, <laughs> there was, there was a lot of, I think, cat and mouse going on. And uh, another, I think uh, midshipman had said, Hey, I, I learned much more playing this game about, uh, they had a term for it. I want to say it was core knowledge. I think this is capes and limbs of ships and different platforms, but the, this particular midshipman had learned a lot more from playing this game about his core knowledge than, you know, the previous week just left to, to study it, you know, to look through lecture notes and, and readings and, and things like that. And I think that speaks a lot to um, the applicability of this, this sort of system. You can 
use it for midshipmen and hopefully you can use it with staffs and everybody in between. Well, and I'll tell you, it's, it's great to hear, uh, you know, use cases like that of how it's being used and, and it is being used from midshipmen to general officer. So we've used it two years in a row now uh, for the one-star warfighting course for the Marine Corps. Every year, there's a week-long uh, warfighting PME course for Marine Corps one-stars that uh, MAGTAF staff training program uh, runs. And they asked us uh, about a year and a half ago to support the, the, the warfighting course with this game system. Yeah. And we did. So we've done it two years in a row now and it's very well received and it it's, and unfortunately in the course, there's not enough time for them to actually play it where they're the ones moving pieces and rolling the dice. But, but what we do with the generals is we use it to present them with a situation on the board, uh, have them work through and come up with a plan. And then they have a trusted agent and we just call them a chief of staff that is a major or lieutenant colonel that's kind of assigned to that team. And then he's the one that actually has to fight it out with, uh, with another, you know, player that we put on red. And then after they spend several hours fighting back and forth, then the next day we bring the generals back in and go, okay, here's the new situation. What do you want to do? And they'll spend an hour or two talking with some of the, you know, our, our retired generals who are mentoring the course. And, you know, we have like the CMC's poll ad was plugged in this last time. And so they have conversations about, uh, you know, the political situation. Hey, what's the strategy? What do you need to do? And they come up with their plans and uh, we apply it in the game. So it, it, it serves as a good rep and that gets played out, you know, in four turn iterations over four days. And uh, we've gotten a lot of positive feedback out of it. So, so it is applicable and useful uh, at all levels. Excellent. That's now that's really great news, sir. Do you have a favorite war game? Yeah, that's a really tough question. I think I've got some war games that from a nostalgia standpoint, you know, from growing up that were my mainstays as a kid, those were squad leader, uh, third Reich, I mm-hmm. think is up there uh, on that list. I'd say those two, and then a, a third, that's kind of a different genre would be wooden ships and iron men. Mm-hmm. That's a age of sale game. So when I grew up, those were the three games that were kind of the mainstay from, from my growing up now, now jumping forward to today, you know, I don't, I don't play those, uh, yeah, I haven't played those in a long time. Sure. Occasionally, breakout squad leader, and we'll throw that on the table as a as a fun one to put some infantry squad level action on the table. Sure. I would say today, uh, it's kind of a mix between computer and tabletop. And a big fan of Strategic Command from mm-hmm. Matrix Games as mm-hmm. a computer game. Uh, able to fight World War II, had a great time with my brother fighting World War II. Uh, over a period of about six months, we went back and forth with that, you know, wow. doing the doing the turn-based uh, gameplay online, doing a few turns a week. So I, I, I prefer the kind of operational level war game, uh, and that that one is definitely a favorite. I've I've dove into Next War, mm-hmm. uh, which you know I really like the the focus from a modern war standpoint, and then just starting to break into some of the Cold War games. Uh, Iron Curtain is a standard combat series game GMT puts out and uh, just just started tackling that one. And, and I think, you know, the game system, I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of, but uh, really more of the genre. So I, 
it's a tough question. You know, what's, what's my favorite game. I, I think, uh, you know, anytime you put gets a game on the table, it's a good day. Sure. And, uh, so it's, it's the game I'm playing at the moment probably. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, it's a, there's, there's just so many. And, uh, the other one from a computer standpoint, and this kind of harkens back to squad leader is battle Academy. Yeah. Uh, from a squad level computer war game standpoint, that's a great series. Uh, really does a good job of taking that that small unit action and computerizing it with some good decision making. So that's, that's a great game. To, to add to that, do you think the Battle Academy series would be a good way to introduce younger Marines into wargaming? It's computerized, so you're not punching counters and needing to set up this this large table and, and a map. You can jump into it relatively quickly. Would, would if you know if someone said Hey, sir, what's a, what's a war game you would use to introduce, let's say, you know, PFC's Lance Corporals and Corporals to wargaming? Uh, would that be one of them? Yeah, I think it's a good one. Uh, I think that one, Combat Mission is another one. Yeah. And in I, fact, I Combat Mission was specifically, you know, oriented towards the Marine Corps with a specific module developed for it a long time ago. Yeah. Um, you know, Flashpoint Campaigns is another one. I think for the battalion level, brigade level combat, particularly land warfare focused, uh, the Flashpoint campaigns computer game is, is an awesome one. I, I've really enjoyed playing that one a lot. And, and it's very customizable as well. You can dive into the, you know, the, the parametric data associated with the counters and you can easily manipulate it with, with a little bit of time investment and figure out how to do it. But it's an Excel spreadsheet that you can just dive into and manipulate. So Flashpoint Campaigns is another really good one. And the university has been partnered with Matrix Games on that one to improve its capabilities. Dr. Ben Jensen has been kind of leading that effort and uh, really enhanced a lot of the game, particularly some of the Intel uh, aspects of it. Uh, it's, it's a really good one now, particularly at the staff level of play. Well, these sound like great titles, so I'll make sure to include uh, links. But, sir, I'd like to talk a little bit about how war games are different from and similar to other types of decision games. So in your eyes, what are the differences between traditional educational war games and other kinds of decision games like tactical decision games and decision forcing cases? Do you see these things as complementary exercises? Is one better than the other? What are your thoughts on, on that? I think they're certainly complementary. Uh, to me, the biggest difference in a War game, as, as I would kind of define it, you're, you're playing against an opponent and you're going to play it out over time, right? So like a tactical decision game is a snapshot in time presented with a situation. You make a decision based on what you're presented in that vignette. Uh, and then typically it's not adjudicated, at least like in the traditional sense from like the Marine Corps Gazette, TDGs. Sure. You, you get presented with a solution, but you don't know how it turns out, right? How, how good was that? And, you know, that's kind of left open to interpretation and speculation as to, okay, how would it play out? So the great thing about a war game is you actually do fight it out. And, you, you know, through some kind of adjudication system with somebody else who is on the other side, who's making decisions that are, you know, countering what you're doing. And so it's that interaction that's achieved in a war game that I think takes it what I would consider a step above and beyond uh, what a decision forcing case or a TDG does. Sure. 
It's no secret that the Marine Corps is building a wargaming center and the warfighting lab is, I think, closely associated with the center. Could you talk about the purpose of the center as well as the warfighting lab's relationship to it? Absolutely. So this has been in the works really since about 2015-16 when uh, DefSecDef work really uh, promoted wargaming inside of DOD and wanted to revitalize it. The Marine Corps did an internal assessment looking at our wargaming capabilities, and then that became the genesis behind uh, really putting a lot of investment into taking the Marine Corps' wargaming capability and really putting it on steroids mm-hmm. and giving it something uh, much more robust than, than it has had. So to, to put in framework, you know, the, the capability when I stepped in about two and a half years ago was roughly about on any given day, 20 to 25 people made up the wargaming division of the lab. About half of that uh, contract, a little bit over half contract support. And then facility wise, we're, we're on the campus of Marine University, uh, have a few rooms in the basement of Breckenridge. And of course there's Ellis Hall there at Marine University that we can use as a uh, you know, we can we can convert it to a secret space and conduct a larger war game with 150 to 200 people in there. Uh, but that's really from a capability that we have organic. That that's it. And when we talk about the war gaming center that the Marine Corps is building, we're talking about a building that's the size of a football field, two stories high completely skiffed up so you can operate at all classification levels and with a staff that's close to 170. So we're, we're talking about an exponential increase in capability for the Marine Corps for wargaming. And it's, it's the people, it's the building, and then it's the software tools that will be available uh, to them. So as part of this effort, the Marine Corps uh, got a prototype effort right now uh, in competition with three different vendors that the Marine Corps has got each of them building a prototype right now. They've, they've got roughly 18 months to put together a prototype of a software uh, tool suite that can support war games and analysis. And in summer of 22, they'll make a decision as to which one of those vendors uh, gets, gets the contract and uh, they'll, they'll down select and, and then that vendor will not only be the one that delivers the software tool suite, but they will also take on the whole portfolio of the Wargaming Center to include the game designers, uh, report writers, uh, analysts, uh, all, you know, the, the running of the technology. Yeah. They're going to take all that on. So that's a, that's a pretty huge investment by the Marine Corps, uh, not only in the building and people, but in... The, the software tool suite. And this is really envisioned as cutting edge kind of capabilities uh, with, with links to different data sets uh, that you can get real-time data pool of information. Just take, for example, you know, readiness levels of units to be able to say, hey, I want to run a game right now. We're going to take those units that are considered in a ready status. What are those? And, and you'd be able to ingest that into your scenario uh, because it, it's connected to the data repository for that information. Or you could link it to, you know, the vision is that you could link it to, you know, Intel databases and pull in the latest order of battle uh, data sets. Now, I've got, uh, 
I mean, that's great. That's, that's a phenomenal vision. And I think particularly with where technology is going with uh, the way data is driving so much of uh, what we do these days, I think it's the right vision. I do have some concerns about the feasibility of, of bringing all that together. And then in particular, the quality of the data, right? Because if you're ingesting orders of battle, you know, how old is it? When was it last updated and reviewed? And so I think there's going to continue to be a review process at the front end of every war game where you might instantly be able to pull in an order of battle, but then you're going to need to spend some time uh, checking it sure. to make sure that what you ingested is, is quality data. But, but these are all going to be really phenomenal tools for the Marine Corps that as we look at concept and capability development, we look at O-plan assessment, uh, we're going to have a cutting edge set of capabilities that will allow us to do that. So you mentioned O-plans, you, you mentioned concept capability development. What role, if any, will the center have as far as education goes? Yeah, so this is, this is a tough problem for Marine Corps University because, because of the the student population where there's a large pool of uh, international officers that are part of it. The, the curriculum of the courses is by and large unclassified. Mm -hmm. And this building being a secure facility is not really geared or designed for unclassified level wargaming. I mean, you could do that. You, you could open it up and, and pull folks in, but, um, it's primarily designed for classified wargaming. Mm -hmm. So I think these are gonna, these are some interesting questions as we look at the future. I think there is a connection. Yeah. Um, I think particularly from an advanced uh, student study kind of standpoint, to be able to take a group of students, partner them up uh, with this wargaming center, and have them do some kind of uh, iterative series of games. You know, similar to what Naval War College does with the Halsey Group. Uh, we're doing it on a, on a small scale here at Marine Corps University with the Gray Scholars Program. Yeah. I think for that kind of wargaming, uh, there's absolutely a tight relationship between the university and this wargaming center, Marine Corps University, and the wargaming center on advanced studies, wargame kind of events. And, and having students as a, an available population pool that can come in and play in some of the service war games uh, on a limited basis as their you know, studies allow them the time or freedom to do that. I think the interesting question is gonna be at the unclassified level, you know, how much investment we, we put in to maintain, you know, I gave an example of this set of software tools. You know, do, we, do we put the time and effort in to maintain an unclass level uh, data set mm -hmm. uh, that the university can tap into or does the university use other tools such as, you know, commercial games like, like command and some of the commercial game market, or do they tap into this war gaming center and leverage the tool set? I think that's still kind of to be determined. Yeah. I think the focus is going to be primarily the, the capability and concept development and plan assessment, which is going to leverage the classified environment. Uh, but given it goes back to the classification issue that given, given the classification of, majority of the curriculum in fact frankly all the curriculum um that's that's really a limitation yeah it's interesting 
you know, looking at what might the, the center be able to do that doesn't require bringing people to it. So, you know, for instance, potentially creating some sort of uh, train the trainer teams or wargaming teams that maybe go out to the fleet and they introduce units and, and kind of run them through, uh, you know, a wargaming package as a means of showing units how they can implement this into their training education programs and, and such. It'd, it'd be it'd be a interesting thing to explore, I think. And that I think might get a, that would kind of sidestep the whole problem of, of classification. Yeah. I just, I wonder where, uh, where, where the Wargaming Center can kind of make strides outside of just bringing people to it. Yeah. So, you know, you're really hitting on the distributed Wargaming capability and that's absolutely got to be a critical capability that this provides and the ability for, you know, an, a MEF or a MU to, to tap into this as they're, you know, one of the thoughts, they're not just O-plan assessment, but even current operations, right? That, mm-hmm. that if you've got something going down that you're generating a plan, it would be great to be able to quickly wargame it and look at some of the possibilities there. And so having the ability to tap into the, the brain power of the Wargaming Center. And when I say brain power, I'm talking about the combination of the people as well as the computing brain power, right? Mm-hmm. And, and tapping into those data sets that you could do real-time Wargaming in support of ongoing operations. Uh, you really need a distributed capability to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, the question is, are those units you know, reaching back to this Wargaming Center and leveraging the tools um, you know, that it delivers in a remote kind of standpoint, or is some of this exportable where some of the software uh, capability is now local to that unit. Some of those tools they can tap into from their location without necessarily directly connecting and they can do it remotely, right? So they war game potentially on their own without the support of the staff of the Wargaming Center but they're leveraging the tools to do it. Sure. So I think there's a, there's a lot of different ways it could be done, uh, but I, I, that is absolutely part of the vision that, that it can enable and enhance uh, not just these tools of capability concept and plan kind of assessment, but, but also ongoing operations. Uh, the degree to which it's really effective in doing that is, is to be determined. Sure. But, but again, this goes back to the idea of having the capability to tap into real-time data sets. that you can ingest quickly generate scenarios. So you're not doing a six to nine month or 12 month scenario build to say, okay, yeah, I can support that, but it's going to take me nine months to do it. That that's not the vision. The vision is, Hey, I could have a scenario requirement and in we're talking hours, days, uh, weeks at the most, you know, you could generate a fairly comprehensive scenario uh, to support a war game and and you've dramatically compressed that development timeline so that's that's taking the power of of ai and of you know data uh data sets data lakes that you can tap into and being able to really harness that uh to put all that information at your fingertips and rapidly generate scenarios for war game well, it sounds like an amazing capability do you see sir any room for analog you know, traditional tabletop games with the Wargaming Center, or is the focus exclusively or mostly on digital exercises, digital sim- simulations? 
I think it, I think it absolutely has to be a part of the, the toolkit. And this is an important point, I think, to really emphasize because the computer supported wargaming comes with it. It comes with algorithms. It comes with a lot of the adjudication already kind of predetermined. And even some of your capabilities that you're, that you're ingesting are, are predetermined. But if you're dealing with something that is hypothetical or a problem set that you don't really understand, you may need to leverage a different kind of working tool. And we, we, when we do the presentation for kind of Wargaming 101, uh, we present kind of three different kinds of Wargame tools. One is your matrix style adjudication, which is subject matter expert opinion. And when you're dealing with a topic or a problem that you may not really understand, you don't know what the critical factors are, then really what you need to do is pull in a group of subject matter experts uh, and that are, that are particularly oriented on that field of study, right? So let's just take, for example, the Commandant has published in Proceedings on the Marine Corps supporting Navy anti-submarine warfare uh, operations to a greater degree than we ever have in, in the past, right? Which is really, really next to nothing is what we've provided in the past. Yeah. And, and so this is, this is something that if you get a bunch of Marines together, how are you gonna war game that, right? I mean, they're, they're gonna be speculating and you're not gonna have a good game that's gonna give you an informed outcome. So you need to pull in the experts in submarine warfare and anti-submarine warfare. And then you need to start having a conversation with, okay, what, what can the Marine Corps do in this space? What's in the art of the possible? and what's most important, and then start putting vignettes on the table, wargaming it, getting the subject matter expert opinion to then distill and identify uh, the key interactions, uh, key capabilities, uh, some, you know, start developing a hypothesis about what could be done. Mm -hmm. and, and you really need that subject matter expert opinion to do it. You're not gonna go to a computer and plug something in and just, you know, randomly figure out Right. what's happening. The computer's not going to really support that. So when you're dealing with something that you don't understand and you really need to kind of generate concepts and hypotheses about capabilities uh, and tactics and what you could do, you really want to run a matrix style game where subject matter expert opinion is going to get weighed in to help you better understand. Sure. Then when you're ready to take that idea and start testing it in a more rigorous fashion with a more established rule set to drive the adjudication, that leads you to a tabletop kind of game where you can still be very agile in the concepts. You can still lean on that subject matter expert uh, opinion to help adjudicate. So it's kind of a hybrid where you've got that tabletop analog game that drives the, the interaction of the people around the table, helps you put some rigor into your adjudication and through a, instead of being completely opinion, human opinion that's driving the outcome, now you've got rules that you're applying that give you some consistency in your results and your outcomes. And then when you have a more mature understanding of the problem, now you can take it into a computer type environment where you're doing that computer driven adjudication. You're able to ensure that the algorithms that you want to 
uh, have the computer use that you've had the opportunity to potentially manipulate those algorithms to help shape the outcomes towards all that you've learned mm-hmm. about what's important. You can shape that with the computer, but then the computer can now take this to an exponential degree of analysis from generating quantitative outputs, putting constraints like the laws of physics in there with, uh, you know, range limitations and fuel limitations, looking at fuel consumption and tracking that to a degree of detail that no analog game is going to be able to do, right? So now you can really take your learning uh, to a higher level. So you absolutely, in a, in a campaign of learning, um, you need to use all those tools to help generate hypotheses and then test those hypotheses to bring you to a point where you can make a and an informed decision. It sounds like it's, it's almost a, a graduated process, right? The, the, the first step would be the matrix game. And, and this, is, this is particularly true of kind of undefined problems, right? The, the less or, or poorly understood, poorly, poorly defined problems, the less defined, the more likely we are to start with a matrix game. And then from there, go to a tabletop and then finish with, with something digital. And along the way, the assumption is our understanding is improving and it's, it's making it, you know, we're finding it easier and easier to kind of draw the lines of, of what the, that problem consists of. Is that sort of a fair description of, of this, this system? Yeah, I, I absolutely. I think that's, that's a good description of it. Yeah. How will the Wargaming Center relate to the Warfighting Labs Wargaming Division? Will the division, you know, quote unquote, own the Wargaming Center? Is it going to be more of a partnership? How do you foresee this happening? So you've just touched on a, a very uh, hot topic right now, which is the, the future organizational construct of the Wargaming Center and how it fits within the, uh, the CDNI. CDNI is the Concept Development Integration Director for the Marine Corps. So Deputy Commandant for that um, right now, Lieutenant General Eric Smith is, is the Deputy Commandant for that. And, and organizationally, the Marine Corps evolved a little bit in the last year and a half with, with the separation of training and education command from CDNI. So that's now an independent three-star command. And so CDNI is focused on that, uh, you know, future capability and concept development. Inside of CDNI, you've got three workhorse organizations. You've got CDD, that is the capability development directory. You've got the warfighting lab. And then you've got the operations analysis division, OAD, that does uh, studies. So what's interesting is we look to the future of this wargaming capability. There's an ongoing discussion about how it fits organizationally within CDNI. Where's the best place for it? Because it does future-focused wargaming that like the lab is focused on. Uh, it's going to help inform uh better analysis that, that like OAD is doing and OAD right now also does campaign assessment. So they, they use a program called storm that's done storm analysis on campaigns and they do other studies and analysis. And so clearly this Wargaming center, as a matter of fact, the, the, the current title is Marine Corps Wargaming and analysis center. Mm. So, and then you've got the, the other piece to this is capability development director that does all the program requirements and really focused on like the next five years, looking at, at POM cycle development. And so there's, there's a interesting discussion going on over what's the right 
location in the organizational hierarchy of CDNI for this thing. And right now, uh, that rose has been pinned on the lab uh, as kind of the lead, but there's an ongoing discussion that perhaps this Wargaming Center needs to be more in general support of the, the overall CDNI effort and potentially residing outside the lab. Either way, the manpower of the Wargaming division inside the lab will be transformed and, and be, be a core team within the future Wargaming capability that we're building. And, uh, and, and so the lab, its Wargaming capability will be dependent on and leveraged through the, the future Wargaming Center, um, it, whether it owns it underneath the lab or whether it has to go to it as a customer because now it's a more general support organization. So that decision is still uh, pending um, and we'll, we'll see maybe by the time this podcast comes out, that decision might be made, but, but it is an ongoing discussion at the general officer level to determine what is the right optimal position, organizationally speaking, uh, for this capability. Yeah, no, I'll be, I'll be excited to see how it, how it pans out. Sir, what concerns, if any, might you have about the future of Wargaming in the Marine Corps? Yeah, I think, you know, the biggest concern I have is really one of uh, it gaining traction within the broader Marine Corps, uh, you know, the individual Marine, the, the small unit level, and particularly from a professional military education standpoint, that it can gain traction as a tool in the kit bag that gets used more extensively than it is today. And my big concern there is really, frankly, it's one of time and the competition in time with all the other activities associated with professional military education. So, because, because they all have value, right? I mean, whether you're reading books, whether you're going to pull folks together into a small group discussion on a topic, you're going to present them with a tactical decision game, you know, whatever it might be, uh, there's value in that instructional method. And the challenge with war games is, you know, a lot of them take time to, to really allow the, the game to play back and forth. I mean, you can have fast games and, and that's absolutely true that you can make it in a couple hours, but, but then there's value in the games that go over time and may take, you know, several days to play out. And so now you're competing in curriculum inside the curriculum for that time mm-hmm. space, right? Against all the other requirements. And, and then you take it outside of the schoolhouse and into the individual level and within a unit, and and now again, it goes back in the competition of time between, you know, you need to be doing field ops and, you know, going to the range, uh, you know, doing PT and all the other admin. And so you've got to deliberately plan for it and and make it a part of uh, the, the daily or the weekly, you know, training schedule and getting more gaming into that. I believe a way that we can help set conditions from an enterprise standpoint to give games uh, uh, more value in that decision-making process is to create a good set of war game tools that enhance the value proposition, right? If, if you've got great games that people enjoy playing and when they play it, most importantly, they feel like they are learning and they're 
they're honing their professional skills. If they feel that there is value in that, then they will play it, right? Yeah. If, if they don't and they feel like it's just entertainment, right, that they're just doing, doing it to, to have fun and, and, uh, and they're not honing the profession, then it's not going to gain traction. So it's incumbent on those of us who are you know, trying to set conditions to focus on delivering a quality set of war game tools that is available to every Marine that they can then leverage for personal professional development where they want to spend the time and effort to invest in it. They, they have a tool, right? Uh, and then if it's a staff that they want to test their ideas in a game or test their planning in a game, they have a tool. And as we discussed, uh, you know, earlier in this conversation, you know, those tools uh, by and large uh, are either only resident within like the higher end simulations like MTWAS mm -hmm. uh, or in a commercial game that right. may not really adequately address the Marine Corps from an organization standpoint. There's there's next to nothing on the market that really gets at today and even future Marine Corps capabilities and allow somebody to easily test that. There are some tools, but they're very, very limited. And, and a lot of those are, are not very accessible to a unit to integrate into their daily or weekly schedule to play. Yeah. And I, I think there's, there's something to be said about finding ways to help units, help commanders, help staffs save time. If there's a way that you can use a game or a series of games to accomplish multiple goals, multiple objectives, that on top of the professional honing that you talked about, I think could that could go a long way to, to selling uh, wargaming as, as a valuable and, and maybe even essential tool for, uh, for units. But it's, you, you gotta kind of get your foot in the door first. And I think that, I think for, for so many out there, that's, that is, that is the barrier. And if you can, if you can get over that and, and show the, show the benefit of, of wargaming and that it really can help people make better decisions, practice critical thinking, identify biases, all sorts of, I mean, the list goes on. I think, I think at this point um, we shouldn't have to do too much selling of the benefits of wargaming, but you know, it, it it is still there. It is still a, an obstacle. So that's something that I'd certainly like to, to see explored. And, and beyond that, just using games in general, not, not just necessarily war games, but you know, there's a term out there called gamification, which means different things to different people. But the way I, I've, I've seen it interpreted that, that kind of jives with, with my thoughts on, on how I think it should be used for the Marine Corps is how can we use games as a means of helping Marines learn? There was an example, for instance, uh, you know, drill tag, you know, so you're trying to teach uh, combat instructors at, at the school of infantry um, or reminding them rather how to perform drill. And if you can make a game out of it where you've got two groups of, of combat instructors and they're trying to tag each other, you know, in formation while doing all the drill permutations correctly, you know, that takes something that you know, many Marines might find dry or they don't necessarily see the, the application and, and turns it into a game. It turns it into competition. It's fun. So I think taking sort of that sort of lens could, uh, could really yield a lot of benefits for the Marine Corps. That's again, something I'd like to like to see explored more. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you in that. And, you know, key thing about learning is, you know, something, something that helps 
you remember it and that drives it into your, your brain. Different people learn in different ways. And, and the thing about gaming is, is it's, it's active, right? Because you're, you're, you're fully immersed in it. You're, you're thinking about it. And especially with an analog game, you may even be, be physically interacting with it. And then you have the emotional investment because it's a competition, right? right? And we talked about this already, right? Yeah, that, yeah. That, that then helps drive the learning with the emotional investment, you gain that very quickly with a war game when you're in competition, you gain yeah. the emotional participation of, of the of the learner yeah. into that. And uh, and then I also agree with you that I think with with today's uh, environment in the Marine Corps and in the culture, it's not that we need to sell war gaming. I think people see the value of it. And, and I get inquiries all the time from folks about it. it, it it's more a challenge of they, they don't know what to do exactly, mm -hmm. right? From a, and this goes back to the tools, right? right? We, we don't have a common set of tools that you could pull up or throw that game on the table and Marines have been exposed to it in the schoolhouse. They, they, they know the game rules, right? If we can achieve a common set of tools that make it familiar to all the Marines and, and they, then when you want to war game any topic, you're not teaching the game, like how to play the game. You're just taking the topic and, hey, let's throw this on the table and let's, mm -hmm. let's examine this question, right? Yeah. And, and we're not there, right? That's where we're not at. We, we're not at that point where we have that common tool. And so the interest is there. I think people are sold on it. Mm -hmm. We've just got to capitalize on this. It's an institution in this timing with the conditions that have been set, frankly, by leadership our senior leaders have set the conditions from a wargaming standpoint. They put it out there as a benchmark. Now it's incumbent upon those of us that are, that are part of that wargaming um, you know, enterprise to deliver the tools that allow them to capitalize on that and to do the wargaming. Yeah, totally agree, sir. Sir, we've been talking about wargaming. I would like to now turn to tanks. So given your background, as a tanker, I'd be remiss if I if I didn't ask you any questions about your, your MOS. So the Marine Corps has cased the, the colors of its its tank battalions. As a tanker, what's your reaction to this? Do you think tanks are gone for good? Um, what and, and if not, what what kind of situation might warrant their return? Yeah, talk about emotional investment in something. So, uh, yeah, this is a this is a, another big topic, and and it's controversial with, without a doubt. Uh, the commandant has, you know, made this decision and he's made it for, for good reasons. There's also good counterpoints, but, but this really, you know, gets to a question as we look at the future of the Marine Corps, it is a budget constrained and force structure constrained, um, strategy, right? As we, is we try to figure out what is the right set of capabilities for the Marine Corps to maintain and deliver to the joint force. You know, the question is, uh, should tanks be part of that? And, and I think there are a lot of Marines that would say yes. I mean, I, I would say yes. But the question is one of, and given the budget and given the mandates of the force that we're being asked to deliver, you know, to do certain things, particularly with sea denial, uh, the Marine Corps has to invest in other capabilities. And, and there are 
hard decisions about the force design that have to be made. And, and you know, cutting tanks was one of those as a way to help focus the limited funds that the Marine Corps has, both for operations and maintenance, as well as for future capability development and the manpower structure, right? The people cost. Right. So it's a zero sum game. And, and that, that sum is getting harder to add up and, and balance, right? It, when you look at the cost of what it took to field uh, a, a, you know, a Humvee or, or an individual Marine and the, the personal protective equipment, the weapons, you know, that system, the system that represents the individual Marine, far more expensive today than it was like back in the eighties, right? right? Same thing for the vehicles, for the aircraft, you know, it, the prices are all going up yeah. at a rate that is higher than our budget increases go up. And, and I, I don't believe we've really truly come to grips yet with the fiscal realities that the, the 2020 Marine that we're trying to deliver to the nation and the combined arms capability set that goes around them, uh, uh, the, the vision of what we want to do and then the fiscal realities of what we can actually pay for don't reconcile. Yeah. And, and so how do you arrive at the right set of capabilities for the nation and within the budget that you're being given, right? Mm -hmm. that, that is the Commandant's challenge as his Title 10 responsibility of organized training equipped. So he has to make hard really hard choices mm -hmm. over what capabilities the Marine Corps is going to deliver. So, so that's kind of my, you know, broad yeah. framework that kind of, you have to set the landscape because otherwise, you know, it becomes this discussion of, you know, the value of the tank and there's absolutely value in the tank. And then there, you know, the debate about, is it still relevant? And I think there's legitimate questions that, that we can discuss about that. Um, but, but I just want to go back to this decision that the yeah. commandant made and, and the why behind it. And that's kind of the why it's, it's, he, he made that choice, uh, looking at the demand signal of what he had to deliver to the joint force now and, and look at, and saying, Hey, if we had to operate with tanks somewhere and we needed that as part of our portfolio, that we would go to the army and the army would deliver that tank capability. Now, now there are concerns about that as well, right? Because from a training standpoint, we arguably will not have done the tank infantry integrated training that was frankly the bread and butter. When I was the, the, the commander for first tank battalion, uh, that was our focus was, was tank infantry integration and providing tank capabilities that could enhance and enable infantry operations was our focus. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what we did partnered up with, with infantry formations and not just infantry, but artillery as well. Right. And air, you, you know, by organically generating tank combat power inside the Marine Corps, you have a combined arms capability that can effectively integrate with, and is fully interoperable with the other, combined arms capabilities inside the Marine Corps, right? So that's the value proposition of, of owning the capability as you can fully train to it and it's well integrated in the force. Now, if we're out there in some foreign country and we've now got to pull in a, an army tank unit to deliver that arm of combined arms, you're going to have a, 
a, an infantry formation that a lot of those Marines may never have operated with tanks before. And, and so you're going to have challenges with that. So that, that's, that's a concern about the proposed way ahead. And it's not just proposed, it is the way ahead right, for, for right now. Now, back to your question of, you know, will we, will we see the tank again? Well, interestingly, the Army, as you're probably aware, with their mobile protected firepower um, acquisition plan is essentially getting a light tank, right? They're, they're for the 82nd Airborne and their light infantry brigade combat teams, they're trying to generate a tank company that can go with that brigade as an organic armored, uh, a, a tank capability for those brigades. And there's, there's a BAE uh, light tank, the M8 Buford, a, a modernized version of that uh, assault gun system that they were working on back in the 90s. They've, they basically have, uh, you know, modernized it to make it relevant to today. And they're testing that one. And then General Dynamics has uh, got a prototype right now that's based on an Ajax uh, chassis with, you know, borrowing a lot of the capabilities from an M1 tank turret. Uh, since General Dynamics produces that, mm. you know, common fire control system. And th so they've got a, a, heavy, uh, a, a heavier offering than what the BAEs is. BAEs can be transported in a C-130. I don't believe that the uh, General Dynamics one can, but, mm -hmm. but you have here two prototypes that uh, will be in competition in the 82nd Airborne Division over the next six months, they'll get tested. And then uh, I believe it's in 22, the Army's gonna make a decision about which one it's gonna field. Yeah. There's a lot of folks who feel like the Marine Corps should, should leverage this acquisition program that the Army's putting in to potentially deliver a capability for the Marine Corps. And I, and I would say that if there is a time in the future when the Marine Corps decides, hey, we, we need to regenerate a tank capability, that there's gonna be this mobile protected firepower solution that the Army's building right now, they're doing all that upfront investment. It will exist and be out there as potentially a joint capability that we could invest in and quickly generate that capability. Now, I say quickly, that's not really entirely true because you know, the, the power of, of the manpower in the tank community right now is you've got, you know, staff and CEOs in particular with, you know, decades of tank experience, right, that, that give you the knowledge base that gives you an effective capability, right? That, that does not get generated quickly. Right. And, and you're going to, we're going to, we're, we're in the process of losing all that knowledge now that is trans going to be transitioning out of the Marine Corps. So 10 years from now, if we want to stand up a, a tank capability in the Marine Corps, that staff NCO cadre that has been the core of the tank community is going to be gone. And, and it will take decades to regenerate that knowledge base, right? Yeah. That's the biggest concern right now about, you know, cutting the tank community out of the Marine Corps. Now, when you do decide to change to, to restart that, you've lost the staff and CO cadre. Uh, it's, and it's not just about staff and I'm not talking like staff and CO leadership, because you could take folks from other MLSs and bring them in to get the staff and CO leadership. I'm talking about the tank knowledge, right? 
about the tactics, about all those things that years of experience in the field of operating with tanks gives you. Um, that is that is powerful, and and that's the biggest concern about it. So, could a day come where we decide to regenerate? Yes, and and then we will go through years of growing pains as we as we rebuild a staff NCO cadre to to run it. Uh, so the question is, is that day going to come um, where we decide to regenerate it? I I think this is Tim Barrick's opinion that. The, the tank is not gone from the combined arms uh, capability set. There are some who argue that with loitering munitions mm-hmm. that and precision guided munitions, and, and we see it, you know, playing out on battlefields, right? That the tanks are getting uh, taken off, off the battlefield by, by mines, by loitering munitions, by precision guided munitions. And, and it is absolutely uh an environment right now that that uh, has a lot of anti-tank capability that definitely uh, threatens the, the viability of the tank. However, it's about combined arms, right? In, in the end, this is this is about combined arms because you can make the same argument for infantry or any capability out there, right? That yeah, yeah. that it's a lethal battlefield, and if you're on that battlefield, you have you you can die in more ways today than ever before, right? right? And and particularly with loitering munitions, everything is under threat. And so how are you gonna enable that rifle squad to maneuver in battle space? You know, what is the set of combined arms capabilities that we are gonna deliver that allows a rifle squad to, to survive, to persist, to maneuver, in battle space, right? That is highly lethal, that is full of sensors. How are you gonna make that happen? Great I, believe, I believe it's gonna be combined arms capabilities and those combined arms capabilities that you need to enable a rifle squad to maneuver are arguably not gonna be solely based on ones that they can carry on their back. Mm. You know, that you need power generation that is gonna to have to be on a vehicle to generate the kind of power that you're gonna need and also to get the range that you need to deliver that effect, right? You're gonna, it's gonna be heavy. It's gonna, it's gonna be heavy and it's gonna require power to, and I'm talking about things like anti-air systems that are gonna be your, your counter lawyering munition capability, right? Counter UAS, um, anti-aircraft capability. That's gonna be a blend I believe, of both kinetic and non-kinetic capabilities, right? So you, you can jam it, and then if the jamming doesn't work because it's fully autonomous, then, then you have to transition to it a kinetic kill, right? And, and what a rifleman can carry individually is not going to be sufficient to the need. And so we are going to have to deliver a set of mobile vehicle-based combined arms capabilities that can round out the, the, that combined arms system yeah. that, the, that the Marine Corps delivers in the battle space. And, and I think that we will find at a point in the future that we will need a gun system that can support the infantry, 
that is also enabled with a, an array of anti-air capabilities mm -hmm. that uh, for purpose of multi-role, multi-mission kind of capability, we're going to try to package in in a vehicle or a, or a family of vehicles. Um, and so I think, I think there'll come a day when we, we come back to that because the combined arms situation is going to require it, yeah. um, given, given the mission set that we're focused on. Uh, but, but for right now, you know, we're focused on sea denial. We're focused on generating some anti-surface capabilities, uh, anti-surface ship capabilities, and that costs money and it's going to require structure. And so as we look to, you know, creating a, or delivering a force that enhances fleet maneuver right now, the demand signal is for capabilities that are not necessarily a tank. And, but, but I think this is a point in time in our history where this is our focus. And I think very easily it could shift that focus and mission emphasis could shift sure. back towards landward combat power, uh, urban operations, and capabilities where we will need to enhance our infantry with a combined arms capability that is vehicle-based, armor-protected, persistent presence that it can deliver, uh, that is protected firepower, that can provide a bubble around an infantry formation to help it to maneuver and close on an objective, which is in essence why a tank was made in the first place, right? Back to World War I of enabling infantry to maneuver to close on their objective, and they needed tanks to help them cross that no man's land. That same tactical and operational demand still exists where infantry, if they're gonna close on an objective and seize it and hold it, they are gonna require enablers that enhance their, their firepower and enhance their mobility. And, and so that requirement for a tank is still there it's, it's a question of, you know, what is that combined arms solution set? And, and there are concerns that uh, right now, as we've eliminated tanks, that that offensive punch of the Marine Corps on the ground uh, has been curtailed. Uh, that's, that's a legitimate concern. And, and, it, and it's a, it requires new thinking about how we employ the force, right? New, new ideas about what it means for a Marine division or you know, an infantry regiment to be on the offensive in how we maneuver and close with the enemy and seize an objective and hold that objective. That combined arms system that we employ, we need to think about it differently, not just because of tanks, but also because of this revolution that unmanned systems uh, are driving in the battle space with their sensing capability that they deliver, the strike capability that they deliver, uh, it requires new thinking about how we employ that, how we maneuver. Um, and, and I don't believe we fully have come to grips with what that is as we think about that future capability set. Yeah, so, so much fascinating stuff there. One thing that you said earlier, if the if the need arises down the road to rebuild the Marine Corps tank capability, and perhaps by that time, the staff and COs, the, 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 the folks who have a lot of experience with tanks are, are gone. You've, you're, you're kind of SOL. I, I wonder though, and this is something that I've criticized the Marine Corps about before 
when it comes to institutionalizing experience, uh, I, th I think the Marine Corps could could do a much better job. And this is one place where it could do it. Who, if, if anyone, is interviewing those staff sergeants or talking to these folks and saying, tell me everything you know, what are all the tips and tricks about tank warfare? What are the things that we need to get into documents, into lessons learned archives so that when, if that, the, and I, I do think it is more of a question of when, not if, um, we need to rebuild this capability. What can we, what can we turn to that's on the shelves? You know, taking into account, it's not going to tell us everything. And you may be inviting people who were tankers, you know, five, 10, 10 years ago to, to come and talk to the, the new units being stood up. But I see this as well. I think with, with Iraq and Afghanistan, we've, we've pivoted totally to China and I, where are the, you know, where are the kind of large lessons learned documents about, you know, decades of, of fighting coin in, in Afghanistan and Iraq? I, I don't see them. So this is, this is somewhere where I think that the Marine Corps may be committing a mistake that it's, it's done before. Some other interesting points were, well, if the Marine Corps needs tanks, particularly in the near future, we can call on the army. I think there's an additional hurdle of now you're operating with an organization that doesn't necessarily have the common framework that Marine takers have with Marine infantry. And I wonder how would the, how would the Battle of Huey look if it were fought with Marine infantry and, and army tanks? I'm, I'm sure we'd, we'd still, still win, but how many you know, first, second, third day mistakes might be made as these two organizations are trying to, to work together and, and figure out how, how the other ticks, how they communicate, what are the idiosyncrasies of, of each other that uh, we need to work out. So I think that's, that's interesting. And yeah, it, it, it just, it, it causes, you know, it, it gives, it gives you a lot of cause to, to kind of think on this, you know, if the Marine Corps finds itself in an urban fight, and again, I think that is a, a matter of when, not if, um, and it's on its own. And let, for whatever reason, you know, the situation develops very quickly. There's a mew offshore. You're, you know, you're trying to secure some, some objective, some building, and unexpectedly, you know, large-scale urban fighting breaks out. As, as far as large caliber weapons, I don't think the Marine Corps will really have much at its disposal. How do you, how do you work that around? One, one solution, as you mentioned, we've got to rethink what it looks like to use battalions, regiments in the offensive. But um, yeah, I think it's a bit scary to see the Marine Corps divest itself of tanks and not replace it immediately with some large caliber motorized mechanized capability. So I'm, 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 I'm looking closely to see where the Marine Corps goes in that respect. But in any case, the, you know, we, we've got some interesting, interesting times ahead. Yeah, and, and I'll hit on something you just talked about because you know I think with with respect to the capability the Marine Corps needs, you know, a sure the tank gives you the it, it's about protection, it's about mobility, and it's about firepower. And as we look to the future, you know, the problem with protection is weight, mass, and and also cost, right? As we look at active protection systems, passive protection systems, and the armor and all of that goes into the, the protection calculus. But by, by, taking, by eliminating the tank, we've, we've also lost that firepower piece. So, you know, I, I've been a staunch believer in, you know, a solution for the Marine Corps that accepts some risk in the protection realm in order to 
provide a firepower and mobile solution yeah. that, that can deliver that firepower and support the infantry. So, so an assault gun like capability, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and as we look at the mobility accompanied with wheeled vehicles, particularly that, you know, eight, eight wheeled, uh, you know, platform like, like the right. ACP. And there's a, a, a number of examples around the globe of, of wheeled vehicles, you know, to put a, a gun on it, even if it's a, uh, you know, like a self-propelled uh, mortar kind of capability that at least you can deliver direct fire HE that is high caliber, right, on a persistent basis. I, I think there's a, we, we have not only lost that tank capability for the Marine Corps by cutting it, but, but we've, we've eliminated any kind of direct fire uh, high explosive uh, firepower mm -hmm. that can support the infantry. So, so I think that there's an argument to be made that even if we don't go back to a tank, um, I, I think the number one recommendation would be mobile protected firepower, the solution the army is working on. Yeah, yeah. But if we didn't go that route and we wanted to take something like a 120 millimeter mortar system that could be used in direct fire mode, yeah. now you can deliver a capability that's not only enhancing your indirect fire uh, you know, you have mobile indirect fire capability, but then you can also, when needed, convert it into a direct fire platform. Now, right. there's issues of survivability, right? But but with tactics, you can help compensate it. You're never going to eliminate all the risk, but you can help compensate it. And then again, I go back to we have to look at if we are going to go to that kind of capability, what is the anti-air capability that goes with it, and is it is it embedded in the platform? Yeah. Or is it now a another vehicle that we must invest in, uh, like we're doing with uh, the Mattis? Is a, is a JLTV chassis based anti air capability that we're delivering? Do we continue to do that, or do we, you know? But now it may not keep up, right? From a mobility standpoint, it may not share the mobility of like an armored gun system or the mobile protect firepower. So how do you how do you have an anti air capability that can keep pace in the battlefield? With your mechanized assets and and so i think we may end up with in the future i i would love to see a family of vehicles where you have a direct fire uh gun uh along with the anti-air capabilities and potentially even the strike capabilities of like a loitering munition where you have a, a capabilities maneuvering around the battle space with all of that now those kind of families of vehicles cost and it takes time to build those but i i could i could see not necessarily a tank in the in the near future. I'd say we're more likely to get some kind of armored gun system like that. Yeah. Uh, that's a derivative of a self-propelled kind of vehicle that can do direct fire HE when you need it. Yeah. No. Again, fascinating stuff, sir. In, in your experience, what are some qualities of of tanks that Marines and, and other MOSs have often failed to appreciate or grasp and has this has this this view that these Marines have held has has that changed after working with tanks or or do you see sort of the lack of understanding still persist? Yeah, so I think you know the common the common I think misperception is that you know you need a tank to fight a tank, right? That that's why the Marine Corps has tanks, and that's not really the primary role of tanks in the Marine Corps. Is well, well, that's certainly a capability it gives you 
the reality is it's more about enabling infantry maneuver uh, and infantry operations. And so as, as folks get exposed to tanks and they gain appreciation for its firepower um, and, and its mobility, it's impressive. I mean, you can't help but be impressed when you see it uh, maneuvering across uh, you know, rough terrain and in seeing what it can do. It, you know, it, it is eye-opening when you experience that. And then when you need that firepower and the ability for it to, to take hits uh, with and maneuver in battle space that an infantryman would cannot maneuver, right? Because you have bullets flying and yet a tank can close that distance and, and then take a hit and it may get knocked out. But generally, you know, if you get enough firepower employed against it, it may get knocked out. But but you got a pretty good chance of crew survivability. And, and so that kind of performance of the tank is always impressive. And, you know, they're saying that, you know, if you fought with tanks, you never want to go into combat again without them. Right. <laughs> I mean, that is, that is absolutely, I think still a reality um, provided we can take measures from a combined arm system standpoint to counter the loitering munitions that are now uh, going to be, uh, a, a persistent president in the battle space. You have to have a counter to that. Otherwise, your, your tanks are going to get taken out by, you know, the 40 millimeter grenades dropped from, you know, it dropped into the hatches from some quadcopter above it. Um, and so we have to, we have to counter that and figure out how to do that. But, but I, I think tanks are impressive when you see them in person, when, when you are on the ground and you may be sitting in a building and you start feeling the ground vibrate and shake and you hear, you know, the engine and just the physical power yeah. coming towards you, um, it gets your attention, right? Yeah. And it's intimidating. I mean, there, there's a reason why tanks have a psychological effect in the battle space. And when you're on the receiving end of that, and, and I, you know, I haven't done that in real life, but in training, I've been one of the guys on the ground you know, and tanks are coming at you, especially in an urban environment when they're getting really, really close. Uh, there is absolutely a psychological effect. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's an important thing that Marines have to come to grips with and understand. And what's interesting now is, is I think anti-armor operations for Marine infantry are, are going to be even more, uh, of a mission demand in the future. If we are ever committed ashore somewhere, Marines have to be able to fight against tanks. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's another thing here in the appreciation. And frankly, part of the, part of the unfortunate loss of, of not having tanks in the, in the combined arms inventory now is it makes it more difficult to train infantrymen in anti-armor operations because we don't have them right to, to employ and training against infantrymen, but they still need to know how to kill tanks sure. and how to bolster themselves in that psychological challenge when you're in close terrain and you have tanks that are bearing down on you, how to muster the courage to, to stand up against them and how to maneuver against them and fight against them. So that's absolutely a, a requirement and demand that will continue, if not be even more of a demand, because the, our adversaries are still investing in tanks. And, and it will absolutely be a, 
a combined arms capability that we will have to counter in the future. And, and so that's part of the equation as we wrestle with the force design and the future capability portfolio that we deliver. What is that anti-armor portfolio? And, and that's a, you know, a continuing part of the conversation uh, because we have to be able to counter it. And this goes to you know, what, what Marines grasp about tanks, back to your question, and what, what do they need to understand? Well, they need to understand how to fight them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then understand that when you do have them working for you, how do you employ them as a combined arms capability? And, and we've talked about those concerns already. Yeah, absolutely. So over the course of your career, have you seen tanks used in unconventional or creative ways? And if so, could you give some examples? Yeah, I think, it, it, you know, when we deployed tanks to Helmand Province and used them there, there were some interesting, innovative ways in which they were employed. And I think the one that, you know, was probably most talked about was the partnership between tanks and sniper teams. So, you know, you have here a, a sniper capability that needed to maneuver into the battle space, needed to get eyes on and be able to identify targets and, uh, and then be supported, right? There's risk in putting a sniper team out there that's, that's not got something nearby that can quickly react if, if it's an extremist to, to help it get out of hot water. Um, and so, you know, there were some interesting tactics developed by, by the units in Afghanistan between the infantry and the, uh, the tank units where they partnered up snipers a sniper team with tanks where they would potentially be inserted by the tanks and then the tanks would maneuver to a position where they could overwatch uh, and support where that sniper team's now got somebody really close by that could quickly react, but then could also uh, help put eyes on an objective using the optics that the tank provides, right? And the communications capability it provides. So you've got essentially a, a dismounted team with the sniper team that can, can observe and report. And then you've got a mounted team with the tanks and the, that's very mobile mm -hmm. and the two can work hand in hand. So your, your risk assessment as a commander employing this, your risk assessment now, when you're thinking about putting snipers out there on their own, if you've got tanks close by, you've got some, you know, some great mitigation there that you can quickly get them, uh, get them, get them taken care of with some heavy firepower and also mobility that could extract them also, because uh, you're talking about a small team that could quickly get on top of the tank and get out of there. Mm -hmm. um, so th that I think was a great innovation that they came up with in Afghanistan that uh, that was used pretty effectively and and had had very positive uh, responses from those involved with it. Yeah, no, that's a fascinating combination, you know, tanks and snipers and using the capabilities of, of each in order to accomplish the mission. That's, yeah, that's very, very interesting. So you had first tanks when the Marine Corps decided to send tanks to Afghanistan to particularly Helmand province. Could you, could you tell us some things about the deployment decision and uh, besides what you just explained about the combination of tanks and snipers working together, the experience of your tankers in Afghanistan? Yes, yeah, so this came down in 2010. Uh, I had just taken command in, uh, 
late summer of 2010. And then that fall, uh, the requirement was generated from those in theater in Helmand province where they wanted to deploy uh, a tank company to help support operations. And of course, this was informed by the, the Danes had deployed a tank platoon to, uh, to Kandahar and employed it with very uh, good effect in support of infantry operations. You know, it gave, it gave them a mobile capability that could go cross country. You know, part of the problem with IEDs is with the road networks, right? That if your mobility is primarily limited to road networks, uh, which in the case of MRAPs, you know, they're, while they can go off road, they're, they're really not very yeah. mobile and uh, can easily get stuck. And so if you want to change up your maneuver and be able to maneuver off road, you need something uh, that, that is more capable of cross country movement. And then with the firepower and the optics, and then the fact that it can take a hit, right? So if, if it does get hit with an IED, you're blowing track off, you may blow a road wheel off, uh, but generally speaking, that the tank could survive the hit. Uh, it didn't in every case, but but in almost every case, you know the crew's going to survive without harm, um, and you can patch up that tank and get it back in operation, uh, usually in a matter of hours or days. Uh, and so you have a resilient mobile firepower capability that you can operate in that environment and allow you to get to positions of overwatch uh, to support uh, counterinsurgency operations. So that was the demand signal and the Marine Corps did not have tanks in theater, but they wanted them. And so uh, first tanks was designated to be the, the sourcing unit for the first company to go over there. We had our tank companies were at various levels of readiness and we had our Delta company uh, at the time, Captain Dan Hughes was the company commander, and uh, and they were in the most ready uh, status in that cycle of readiness that the unit typically goes through. They completed gunnery. They were, you know, high state with uh, readiness with formed crews that were trained and, and ready to operate. And so they were the, the closest to being ready to deploy. So we tagged them as the first unit, and then they went through a training package focused on uh, skill sets related to the environment of Afghanistan, uh, you know, particularly with, with IEDs and with maneuvering and that kind of terrain and the tactics that they thought they would employ. So they, we had, if I remember right, we had about two to three months to get them ready before they had to deploy. And so it was a very compressed uh, training package. And then the tanks, I mean, quite the logistical effort to, to fly tanks one at a time into Afghanistan uh, and, and then there was a, the, the capabilities that we put on those tanks, those were special tanks uh, because what we did is we, we added the, the jammers for IEDs. Mm -hmm. We added blue force trackers to every tank. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we added belly armor. Uh, once it got in theater, then we added the, the belly armor uh, to the bottom of it. Uh, and then we also had ammunition that was the first time for it to be employed, which was the multi-purpose high explosive round, the MPHE. So this was a round that was particularly uh, optimized or designed to hit like a squad in the open, right? So in, in the 
at, at range. So you, you basically could program it for what range it detonates. And then it, it's an air explosion that generates shrapnel in a frag pattern that can affect a squad. Or you can use that as multipurpose. You can, you can set it to take out a bunker where now it's delayed and going to blow up once it transits the, the walls of a bunker, then it blows up, right? So it was multipurpose. You could use it to, to engage infantry in the open. So, you know, otherwise we had, prior to that, you really had, you know, a sable round, which is not effective against infantry, right? And, and then, or a canister round, which you have to be very close, mm. or the heat round, which is, you know, going to give you uh, a different kind of explosive shot, but not very good against, like, if you've got insurgents moving in the open or you're going to ambush a team that's setting up IEDs, um, you know, the, the MPHE round was ideal for the operations that we were employing in Afghanistan. So these tanks uh, came with really a special mission package configuration that, that optimized them with the, with the jammers, with the Blue Force trackers, with the MPHE round, and with the uh, belly armor that, that gave them a great set of capabilities to employ in Afghanistan. And the Marines were innovative and used them with great effect. And what they found uh, as they started to do operations was they were resilient as they did take, they did take some IED hits, but in most cases, the hole remained intact and they were able to quickly patch up the track. I mean, track can, can be repaired and replaced. And, and uh, so they were quickly able to patch that up and get back in operation again. That's well, yeah, that's really interesting. And I think when people think Marines in Afghanistan, they, they typically don't think tanks. And that that's a uh, that's a chapter in the story of Marine Corps experience in Afghanistan that I hope I hope somebody's researching, studying, and and uh, writing on it. So if we could just talk about tanks in in general, I'd like to turn to that and and ask what is your favorite tank, and we can. We can start. Uh, I know you're, you know, you're a student of tank history. If we could, let, let's start in uh, World War II. You know, favorite World War II tank. Yeah. So I, I, I definitely say, you know, I hate, uh, you know, putting the generals front and center in that. But the reality is, is from a tank warfare standpoint, they, they did kind of perfect the art there in World War II, and uh, the, the German Tiger tank has always been a, a longtime favorite of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, from from just a tank capability and particularly its its firepower, its ability to to take ta- you know other tanks out at very long ranges uh, with great accuracy with you know eighty eight millimeter gun on, on those things and just uh, pretty phenomenal. So uh, that that's that's probably my favorite from World War II. And I know the the Soviets certainly produced their their share of well armed tanks, as well as uh, tank destroyers. I don't know if it was the Su one twenty two, but they I think they called it the Cat Hunter, you know, to to take out the Tigers, the Panthers, and and other German vehicles that that had wildcat names. What about today? Other other than the Abrams, or or perhaps it is the Abrams. What's your favorite tank that's that's currently um, in service? Yeah, so I I definitely you know when when you've operated a tank and you've been trained up on it, you know, I think you, you definitely have a love for the tank that was yours. Right. So, so I think definitely the Abrams tank, I've got a, a, a strong uh, affection for uh, there are other tanks out there that I find very interesting and fascinating. I've kind of loved, you know, I, I think the Germans again with like the leopard two uh, 
a pretty phenomenal tank and it looks impressive. I really like the fact that the, the turret with its very uh, angled uh, design, you know, it, it looks cool for one. And I think it's uh, certainly a survivability enhancement with the, uh, with the way it's angled there. Uh, I think the Israelis with the Merkava have a very interesting tank design, right? Pretty unique among tanks with the engine forward, creating some, some open space in the back where they can actually transport a, a couple of, uh, you know, several troops back there in the back of the tank. So it's kind of a blend of tank and, and armored personnel carrier at the same time. I think that's a fascinating combination that I've always thought the Marine Corps could, you know, if we had some kind of capability like that would be very good, but you know, the, and then of course the Israelis with, uh, with the Merkava and active protection have been kind of big trailblazers in getting, you know, with their trophy system, a, a pretty awesome capability there. Uh, so, so I think those are, those are my favorites. I think some honorable mentions, I think the South Koreans have a really interesting tank with their K2 Black Panther tank, uh, pretty capable. As a matter of fact, uh, they've got a round where they shoot it in a super elevated mode that can be a top-down attack mm -hmm. uh, on a tank, which is interesting. Yes. Uh, of course, of course, the Israelis with the Merkava also have a mortar system on it. And, and I thought that there's that's one of the things I thought we could, uh, I want to say be more imaginative about, but, but I... It, it, that's not really true because we we were imaginative about some of the ideas you could do with tanks, but it boils down to money, right? And in the end, you can only do so much. But you know, some of these innovative ideas with tanks that you could do, like like with the mortar system with the Merkava, um, or the different kinds of tank rounds that that different systems deliver. But but you know, developing ammunition is a pretty expensive and long endeavor, and you know, the Marine Corps really needs to be relying on other people to, to build those kinds of things. Yeah. But, but those are some of my, uh, my favorites. It, it is interesting with the Russians and the Armada. I mean, we that's, that's really what I was going to ask. Yeah. We can't really have this conversation without talking about, you know, the Russian tank capabilities and like, sure. you know, especially with the Armada, since it's touted as, you know, this new uh, capability that is, you know, some have argued superior. So I, uh, you know, it's interesting. They, they've gone with the remote control turret with that, you know, three-person crew compartment located in the front of the tank. And it'll be interesting to see what, what it really delivers in the battle space. And, you know, the Russians are really good at the armor protection, both passive and active capabilities and developing those. And the Armada, I think, is an interesting example where they really... They've really tried to emphasize both the combination of passive uh, reactive armor capabilities with their active, uh, well, it's the Afghanit, uh, the active protection system that they've got put on there. And then also with trying to cloak it, so to speak, by reducing its thermal signature. Mm. Um, and, and so all these ways that they're trying to protect that tank and then also this crew capsule that is heavily armor protected in it. Uh, you know, taking some of the lessons learned, I think, from the T-72 and its, its destructibility, right, with a low, low to no crew survival if it gets hit. Yeah. Uh, they've tried to, I think, uh, forge a new path here in changing their paradigm about how they do tank design. So it is definitely a revolutionary design. I think the jury's still out about just, just how effective this is. Uh, when you put that crew low in the hole and then you're reliant on 
your your camera sensors right for maneuver of the tank. Uh, I, I've got some concerns about that as a tank commander who's you know used to being at the top of the tank and being able to stick my head up when needed to look around and get that that human lens on what's happening around you. I think there's always value for that. And I think it's just a question of how effective they can be in, in taking their, their outside camera sensors to enable that tank commander to have good visual acuity of what's around them. Is that possible? Absolutely, right? I mean, we see it with our, on our cars today with the rear view camera, right? That gives you a pretty good visibility. But when you start talking about the full range of combat operations and then you start talking about going through mud, right? And, and you start splashing stuff up there. And as soon as all that gets, gets any kind of mud on it and starts to get blocked, now you're screwed, right? So it's, um, it's hard to say uh, what that is, but an interesting design. And, and it'll be interesting to see where main battle tank designs go in the future. I, I, I think in addition to the, the active protection systems, which are probably one of the, the top, you know, revolutionary things going on tanks uh, in the last decade is the active protection. It'll be interesting to see the, the partnership in, with anti-air capabilities and whether those are put on the tank itself, right? To, to give it a point defense against drones. I think it's necessary. Perhaps the active protection is gonna be agile enough to be able to counter both threats. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see what that turns into for the future. But, but I, think, I think tanks are, are not going away. I think it's really more a race from a combined arm standpoint of those countermeasures that can be applied to the tank to keep it alive in a drone environment. I think it's a really fascinating point, this, this proposition that you know, the future of, of the tank and its survivability is not wholly dependent on the tank itself. It's a combined arms solution. Right. That, right. that problem is something that you would need to rely you know, on the infantry, on additions to the tank, or perhaps supporting vehicles that would, that would um, as, a, as a function, as a capability, would, would help that tank survive. So I think that's, that's a fascinating question I'd like to see explored more. For a, another historical question, who are your top three historical tank commanders? Are you a Patton guy? Are you, again, you know, going back to the Germans, a Guderian guy, a Rommel guy, or perhaps, you know, the Israelis, they've, they've got a number of, of really outstanding historical tank commanders. Who, who are your top three? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot out there. You know, I would say, you know, and again, I, I hesitate to go to the Germans as, as examples here, but, uh, but Rommel as uh, seventh Panzer division, yeah. you know, in France, I, I think provides a superb example. And of course with the Africa Corps as well of what's possible in armored warfare, at least in the context of world war II, right. In, in those conditions, you know, I think he blended his, his aggressive style of, you know, you know, infantry attacks and combined arms, you know, and he took that, he saw the possibilities of what a tank could do and then led his division in a way to enable very rapid maneuver. And, yeah. and I think what's also fascinating about that example is the small division staff, right? That, mm -hmm. that he had that very self-contained in a small team, um, 
where now we've got much bigger staffs, right? And and there's there's an argument for the bigger staff, but but at the same time, it's impressive for what he was able to accomplish with a with a small staff. So he's one that I, I'd say is is one I look to, and of, and of course, you know, you have to admire the the Blitzkrieg uh, operations writ large uh, of what the Germans were able to do with tanks. But but in counterpoint, you know, and this doesn't get a lot of uh, airtime is the, the Russian armored maneuver, you know, they, they obviously did well. And, and, you know, with their tank armies and what they were able to do with a, a very capable, you know, T-34 uh, tank and basically mass produce it and, and enable it, even though it wasn't, you know, of the high caliber of, of uh, the German tanks, all around from a mobility standpoint and and able to function, it was a pretty effective tank. And, and, and wielding them in mass in tank armies with the combined arms capability that they delivered uh, was was pretty effective. And so I, I've I've uh, I thought that was always fascinating. Is the armored warfare on the Eastern Front is probably one of my favorite periods of history to mm. to study. And both sides had very capable armored maneuver, particularly Russians uh, later part of the war and uh, Germans earlier on, uh, very interesting mobile warfare to study. Yeah, and, and that's, that's a very interesting point. Um, I think you can, you can look at the Eastern Front in World War II as the, lab, the, 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 the largest laboratory, not just with armored warfare, but potentially ground warfare period in the history of, of warfare, but certainly certainly uh, within the, the context of World War II, I mean, you've got thousands of miles of different types of terrain, different conditions, and you've got armored forces being used all over the place over a period of years. And it's really interesting to see the evolution of the fighting there and to see the, the growth of, of the Soviets, how you know, within the first few weeks of Operation Barbarossa, the, the Soviets are just getting their butts kicked and they have the T-34 available. It's not in the numbers that they would later produce, but they also have got the KV-1, the KV-2. By 1945, you got the T-3485, you've got the Joseph Stalin tanks, you've got these armored, these assault guns, I think, again, the, the SU-122 and, and some others that are doing a real number on, on the German tanks. And that is something that I think students of history, certainly Marines, should should take a look at. It's just, it's really fascinating how things kind of flip-flop. And the, the Soviets are, I think, masters of armored warfare, certainly before the end of World War II. Yeah, it's impressive to see, you know, what they were able to, they took a beating, right? And, yeah. and it's amazing that they didn't collapse and the Germans didn't win and that they were able to do such a effective counterpunch, uh, especially... Uh, you know, late 42 with, mm -hmm. um, with what they did in Stalingrad and, and mm -hmm. frankly against Army Group Center at the same time and, and how they were able to really turn the tide is, you know, their, uh, their will to fight and then their capacity as a nation to then dig deep and generate the combat power to do it is pretty impressive. And, it, you know, it's instructive as we look at today, you know, the thing with World War II is it did get to that industrial power and, and the, the transformation we see in history from the armies of 1940 and 41 to the armies of 44 and 45. 
you know, dramatic differences in transformation of the, the combat capabilities. And so, you know, it's interesting to think about that. And then as we think about future warfare and will we see that same kind of uh, duration in conflict if we do have a great power conflict? Yeah. Is it is it short-lived? And, and the forces that we deliver on the battlefield at that time are, are the ones that come into play and then the war's over? Or would we see a similar, you know, kind of transformation of combat capabilities over a longer duration war, yeah. uh, especially when the combat capabilities we're generating today, on one hand, you could say take a lot longer to build and field. But then on the other hand, as we look at like adaptive manufacturing, with 3D printing, mm -hmm. will we have capabilities that can quickly get regenerated? Yeah, that really transform the battle space. So I digress, but but it's an interesting, uh, you know, topic as you as we look at comparing and contrasting history with where we are today and where we're going to be in the future. What are those lessons we can learn, in particular about you know industrial capacity and resilience in a in a protracted campaign? Yeah, no, completely agree, sir. What are your favorite books on tanks? Uh, so I got a number of them. I, I think from a fiction standpoint, Red Army by Ralph Peters is a, is a great kind of- Oh yeah, no, I've, I've read that a while. I really like yeah, that. Yeah, that, that was Cold War, you know, yeah. from kind of a Russian lens. Uh, I and love that perspectives, book. Perspectives, right? You know, it's, it's jumping from, because if I recall, this is Warsaw Pact invading Right, NATO countries, and you're. I think each chapter, until they start revisiting the characters, but you know the first few chapters, they're looking at. This is I'm just throwing things out there, but you know here's a tank company commander's perspective. Here's a, you know, a, a Soviet airborne platoon commander's perspective, and and each is is doing their thing on the battlefield. But please, uh, yeah, def definitely Tom Clancy kind of style there with, with yeah. the writing, and and it was good. Uh, Defense of Hill 781 by James McDonough. That's yeah. definitely been a been a favorite over the years. A lot of good PMEs have been done on on that book. Yeah. From a mechanized warfare standpoint, that's a that's a really good one. Uh, Panzer Commander by Hans von Luck. Awesome. Uh, that that's a that's a great one. Uh, Brazen Chariots by Bob Chris. This is uh, you know British tankers in North Africa. Of course, Panzer Battles by von Melanthin. That's a that's a classic. And then I'd say the last one I'd offer up is uh, Heights of Courage. Uh, it's Golan Heights. A big door Kahalani. Yeah. Uh, the Yom Kippur '73 War. So that's a really good book. Uh, kind of a tank commander, brigade commander kind of perspective. So that's, uh, there's some good ones out there. Those, those are some of my favorites. Oh, definitely. And again, I'll, I'll make sure to include links to, uh, to those books in the show description. So, sir, final question. Uh, are there any parting and since you're a, you know, tanker, 120 millimeter delivered shots or thoughts <laughs> you have for our, our listeners? Yeah, I think that the biggest thing I'd say is, is that, you know, the, the environment around us is constantly changing. And I feel like for me in my, you know, personal professional development and PME, uh, I look at the last like five years in my studies where I'm at and, and just how the world has changed just in the last five years. And you can never feel like you've arrived or that you've, you've, you've got a mastery of the subject matter because 
it's constantly changing and I feel like it's changing faster and it's harder to keep up. So from, from our profession standpoint, I feel like today, you know, that the challenge of keeping up with where technology is going and then the application of that technology into the battle space. And then what that means for us as tacticians, as uh, practitioners of the art of war, uh, it is harder and harder because it's more complex and requires us to innovate and be adaptive. And uh, just really quickly, uh, there was an interesting study that was commissioned by DARPA after Vietnam that looked at effective infantry battalions in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And they studied all these battalions and they, they, they tried to discern what made one battalion better than another uh, in battle and what contributed most to its success. Well, their conclusion was it was those leaders that were adaptive to the situation that they were placed in. You know, did they enter combat fixated in, you know, stuck in their plan or in the tactics that they entered it with? Yeah. And they, they did not adapt. Uh, those were the ones that fared poorly. The ones who sought to understand what they were confronted with and then adapted their tactics and, and their operations to conform to what they discerned needed to be done to, to achieve success against a thinking adversary that was trying to outsmart them, right? The ones who were adaptive were the ones who were successful. And, and I think that we need to be innovative and we've got to constantly be challenging ourselves to, to try to come to grips with how warfare is evolving and to stay on it. And we can never think that we've arrived. And so I feel constantly, uh, short of information and needing to constantly pursue uh, insight and knowledge uh, because I feel like it's, it's changing faster than we can keep up with it. And, and I feel that more so now than I ever have in my career. And, and so I feel like, you know, that, that to me is the number one thing I'd offer as a parting shot is we cannot ever be content in thinking that we've arrived and have mastery of our profession because it is changing on us faster than we can keep up with it. And I fear that if we do not adapt and, and try to keep pace with it, that we will find ourselves embarrassed and defeated in, in the battle by somebody who is being more innovative and, and understands us and we don't understand them and, and they will adapt and improvise and achieve success. So that's my parting shot. Couldn't agree more, sir. This, this was a highly enlightening chat for me. I, I learned so much and I thank you very much for, for taking the time to, to talk with me and really look forward to sharing this with the society. Yeah, thanks, Damien. It's been a real pleasure. Excellent. And we'll be in touch. Take care. Thanks. Thanks.